please join me as I pray. So our Father, we come to this text and to this moment with a request that you would reveal yourself in power to your people. And that where there are questions and doubts, skepticism, that you would meet us tenderly in those places and strengthen the seeds of faith, that you would fertilize the seeds of faith, God, that you would do a work tenderly and powerfully by your spirit in each one of our hearts as we engage with your word and as we ask the question, can it really be trusted to be God's very words to us? So would you come and move? We look forward to what you intend to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're starting a a new series today, a series that we're calling Skeptics Welcome. Skeptics Welcome. Uh, The heartbeat behind this series that will lead us up and through and beyond uh, Easter is is kind of threefold, three aims that we hope to simultaneously experience. And the first is this, to our friends that are part of this extended family that would say, I'm not yet a Christian, but I've been hanging out around here and I feel loved and connected, loved by and connected to people in this community, but I'm not sure it's me. I've talked with some of you. I've, I've heard that story time and again. I just want to say you're welcome here. We're so glad you're here. Hear me loudly and clearly, double underlined, underscored. You're a very important guest here. We welcome you and we long for the church to be a an honest and robust conversation partner. We want to take your questions seriously. That's one of the heartbeats behind what we're doing in this series. The, a second is this, helping Christians who believe that the doubts that they have should be hidden away or that they should be ashamed of those realities. And quite frankly, to my Christian brothers and sisters in the room that have doubts, we believe that doubts can be catalytic, productive, faithful, if we will bring them into the light and deal with them together as a community. Doubts in many ways are like a hallway. They get you somewhere. They're productive and they're helpful, but they're not a great place to just camp out indefinitely. And so what we want to do is we want to engage them properly and say that that's okay. We all have seasons of doubt and we have tough questions. And so those are welcomed here. Let's wrestle with those together. And to those in the room that would say, you know what, faith comes pretty easy to me. I'm in on Jesus. I believe it all. And, and I just, I don't even, I don't really have doubts. To those brothers and sisters in the room, I would say, I praise God for that. That's actually a spiritual gift. And that's a good thing. But in engaging with these questions, I hope that it nuances and strengthens your faith and equips you to be more prepared to love and tend to neighbors and friends that it just doesn't come as easily for them as maybe it does for you. So skeptics, welcome. We're intending to ask and engage with some of the hard questions. Next week, we're going to talk about, uh, is God loving if hell is real? A couple of weeks on Easter We're going to be exploring resurrection and saying, are we really a people that believe in bodily resurrection on the other side of the grave? Could we possibly be rational and intelligent people and affirm a belief in the resurrection? Is Jesus really the only way to salvation? Isn't Christianity sexually repressive? We will ask and engage with that question. But this morning, to start this series, the question we want to ask is this. Is this book... The Bible that you hold with the 66 books that are contained therein, is it really God's word? 
Can we have confidence that there is a creator God that is speaking and we have access to his words? And in order to get at that question and interact with it a little bit, we're going to start with something that the scriptures are claiming of themselves in the passage that was read from 2 Peter. And then we're going to try to wrestle with it to discern, is it, is it reasonable? Is it trustworthy? Even the claims that are being made in this text. So we're going to let the scriptures start and speak for themselves and wrestle from there. I, the thesis that I have from this text, and I think that we're going we're gonna to step into together, is this. That our scriptures are more reliable in the mind and the heart of Peter, and I believe ultimately in the heart of the Holy Spirit who's revealing this text, that our scriptures are more reliable than a trip into the glory cloud of God itself. And we would be really wise to pay attention. Let's see if, if we can make sense of that together and see if, if we can engage with these tough questions. Looking back at verse 16 through 18, I want us just to pay attention to how Peter, as one of the authors that is speaking with apostolic authority in the New Testament, is establishing some of his own credibility and authority. In 2 Peter, he's, he's writing to a church that is dispersed and is dealing with um, tough blowback from a culture and some false teaching, and they're trying to discern Can we trust the footing on which we stand? And Peter is beginning to speak into that. And as he's explaining some of his own background, his own authority as an apostle, he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. As Peter is describing his own ministry and his own authority as an apostle and an author of of a portion of the New Testament, he's saying, listen, I saw Jesus with my own eyes. And not only that, I saw him at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the episode that he's calling back to mind for his readers. That he and the other two apostles that were in Jesus' inner circle had the opportunity to go up on a mountain and Jesus was revealed in all of his radiant glory standing there with Moses and Elijah. And as Peter is recalling the story, he's even reminded of the very moment where the glory cloud of God descended on that mountain. Incidentally, God the Father interrupted Peter as he was saying in his excitement, hey, maybe we should pitch a tent for these three guys, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, we can all hang out. And in a sense, equating Jesus to the same level of Moses and Elijah, and the Father just doesn't even stomach it. He interrupts him. He's like, shh, shh, shh. listen. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And what Peter says is this. We ourselves heard this very voice. Did you hear it? That's what you call emphasis on the right syllable. He is emphatic about this fact. We heard this very voice with our ears. Like we ourselves heard this very voice. What Peter is doing is he's establishing the fact that not only did I see Jesus, but I saw Jesus in all of his glory. And not only did I see Jesus in all of his glory, but the glory cloud of God the Father descended around me and I heard the voice of the creator God interrupting and correcting me, as it were. (laughs) You see, Peter is proclaiming to have had profound first-hand encounter with the glory of God. And what we, what we have undergirding 
the New Testament is claims of eyewitness accounts and apostolic authority across the board. If you just consider the other two books that are currently available that claim divine authorship or divine inspiration, that would be the Book of Mormon and the Quran. One distinction between those two and what we have in the scriptures and particularly in the New Testament is interestingly, Jesus never wrote anything about himself. He didn't manage or manipulate the outcome. He didn't say, here's the authorized story of what went down. What he did is he lived his life publicly and freely in a community. He called people close. He said, watch me behind closed doors, see everything. And then he handed the pen to four trusted people as, in, in a sense, and said, you tell my story, right? That after the fact, it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that recorded the stories about Jesus. Three eyewitnesses, we know that Mark was Peter's scribe, so he was writing down what this apostolic authoritative voice was saying. Matthew, one of the twelve, John the beloved, they all told their stories. And then lastly, Luke, as a historian and a journalist, went around and interviewed all the eyewitness accounts. Even the beauty of letting it be told from these different perspectives and what comes out as a, as a synthesis, a clear picture of who this Jesus was. What we have is a declaration from eyewitnesses that are proclaiming this is the case. And I think it's important to note as we're wrestling with can we trust what they have written is that at minimum we have to affirm that these men really believed it. They called themselves eyewitnesses, historically were known to be such, wrote things, and they certainly believed it all the way down to the bottom. We know this because to a man they were either killed or exiled for the proclamations that they made. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Uh, Matthew was speared to death in Ethiopia as he went, sharing the good news that needed to be shared to the ends of the earth because Jesus is the resurrected king of all. We also we see that Luke was hung from an olive tree in Thebes, that he was hung for his proclamation and what he had written and what he stood by and testified to. And John, many of us know, was exiled to the island of Patmos because he too would not waver on what he had declared to be true. So this doesn't mean you have to believe it. You may still be going, yeah, that all sounds right and good. That's fine for, for you. But I, I think what we just need to affirm at the outset is that Peter is claiming to be an eyewitness. History would uphold him as such, along with three others that stood next to him that told the story in a, in a clear way that wasn't managed by Jesus, that has stood the test of time, and that they were willing to die confirming as true. This is the Gospels, this portion of our scriptures. Um, and it, it may be that we go, okay, that's good for them. They saw Jesus and if I could see with my eyes and touch with my hands, I would believe too. But quite frankly, I've never had that experience. Perhaps that's your response. And that's a reasonable response. Peter got to go up on the mountain. These other disciples, they got to see Jesus in his resurrected glory eating bro broiled fish. And they're like, man, he's real and alive. And there he is. And I can touch his wounds. But maybe you're saying, but I certainly have never experienced that. What is stunning in the way that Peter is building his argument is what he does next. After establishing that we ourselves heard with our very ears this very voice, I saw him with my eyes, he then turns the corner and what he says is this, you and I have something more certain than that. 
more certain than getting absorbed up into the glory cloud and hearing the voice of God with our own ears. What could be more certain than that? Let's follow Peter's train of thought and see if it makes sense. In 19 verse A, and then I want us to look at 20 and 21, he says this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, more fully confirmed, that that means it's more stable, more trustworthy, more unshakable. He says what we have is the prophetic word, which is more stable, more fully confirmed. Verse 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, how could possibly Peter, with a straight face, say, yeah, I was there, I saw Jesus radiating like lightning, I heard the voice of God, but what you have is better, because you have the scriptures. How could he say this with intellectual honesty and a straight face? I I think at minimum, we, we all just need to recognize first that our own senses have misled us plenty of times. Our eyes, our ears, we, we could have sworn we heard that thing, we could have sworn we saw that thing, our memory gets a little bit slippery. There are experiences that we've had that afterwards we start talking ourselves out of, potentially. One of the ways I've come to realize that what Peter is saying is, I, I don't think he's downplaying his experience on the mountain, don't get me wrong. I think Peter is saying, that's part of why I have apostolic authority. But listen, there's something better. And it, it raised the awareness for me. I, even one of the most miraculous experiences I ever had, I had with another person where the presence and the power of God was so clearly displayed in a way that bore fruit and changed life. And that person that was there with me is no longer walking with the Lord. And I've often wondered, like, how... How can that be? But what I've realized is that experiences are not, our personal experience is not ultimately the most stable and trustworthy understanding for what is, what is true. And interestingly, what Peter is pointing to in saying there's something better, he points to the text, and just follow this with me, because had you gotten to sit down and eat some fish with Jesus, and then you go on with life, and you have to wrestle with, okay, what, what's the implications of that? What he's saying is this, There's something more stable, and it's the fact that what you have in the scriptures is 66 books. 66 books written by 40 authors from three continents, written over a span of 14 centuries. Some were kings. One was a fruit pincher, because that was a job. Uh, There were fishermen and everything in between, so different socioeconomic backgrounds, different levels of training, writing over hundreds of years from different places. And these 66 books penned by these 40 authors told one singular beautiful story that held together and could not have been managed or manipulated by human structures and oversight. Right? Like, what he's saying is, this supersedes any one person's personal experience. It's something that has stood the test of time. It's been painted on a big, broad divine-sized, glorious backdrop that could not have been managed, right? Uh, that he, He's calling us into a place of saying, hey, would you pay attention? There's something bigger going on here. 
Not to mention that within that story, very specific prophecies that were made and then later fulfilled and could be corroborated. He's going, this text that was slowly revealed over time draws us into something so much grander and more fully confirmed than any one person's experience, no matter how glorious it was. This is what what Peter is drawing us into. And, And ultimately, this text has all the marks of an eyewitness account, right? That even just thinking about these gospel accounts that say, yes, we walked with Jesus, we saw him, we saw him asleep in the boat on the cushion, and it looked like this, right? But then, even in the way that they tell the story, if if a group of disciples got together in a locked room and said, let's hatch a plan to convince the world that we knew God in flesh and that he really is alive and that even though it's not true, let's get our stories right and tell the story. Listen, if people were making it up, they wouldn't tell the story one with themselves looking so foolish. The disciples consistently engaging in missteps and failure, turning fearfully away from the Lord denying him three times, those stories would not be in if you get to make up your story. And even more so, women wouldn't have been the first eyewitnesses. That would have been incredibly embarrassing for the apostles because a woman's voice wouldn't hold up in a court of law in that time and place. So that would not be stated unless it's true. So what we have is eyewitness accounts with all the marks of an eyewitness account that have stood the test of time, that have that have come from three different continents over 1,400 years, comprising 66 books telling one single story. Peter's saying, listen, this is more compelling than I had an experience. But the question may still remain, and there's some thoughtful listeners right now that have a question that, that very likely is percolating in the back of their minds, and it's the right one. How can we possibly trust that what we have is what they wrote? Maybe you're familiar with a a man named Bart Ehrman who wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. And Bart Ehrman has time and again made comments like, Christian, you don't have what was written by these authors. You don't even have a copy of what was written by these authors. You don't have a copy of a copy of what was written by these authors. All you have is copies of copies of copies of copies that have stood the test of time that, that can be dated to hundreds of years after the fact. And so in the face of that, what what do we do? Are are we just subject to this really clumsy game of telephone that has been handed down and now we go, maybe at one point it had the marks of authority and of an eyewitness account, but now we just have this compromised amalgamation of what has been passed down to us. Is that the best we can do? And if those are questions you've had or those are books that you've read, I just want to I want to commend to you the scholarship of one man who I I can't dig into all of his work, but I love it. If you're interested in this, please go read more by him or watch some lectures that are on the internet. His name is Dan Wallace. Dan runs the center. uh, He's the director of the Center for the Study of the New Testament Manuscripts. And he has made it his life's work to digitize every ancient Greek manuscript that is available so that through computer, uh, they, can, they can kind of examine every variant and understand what's going on in these historic translations, or um, all these historic texts. Dan Wallace's work is really phenomenal. I just want to summarize a few bits and pieces of it for us here. Three very simple notes about can we trust the text and the way that these manuscripts have been handed down. One is this, the quantity of the texts is stunning. The quantity of the text is stunning. There are 6,000 ancient manuscripts of the Greek New Testament 
So these are handwritten pre-printing press. There's 6,000 of them. Uh, those are not all complete, but the average length of those New Testaments is about 500 pages. So these are substantial texts that have stood the test of time and that we can go back and look at. There are variants. There are one of the things that Bart Ehrman will, will very clearly articulate. He says there are 400,000 variants in New Testament texts. He says that's more than there are words in the New Testament. So how can we trust any of it? And when you hear that, it can make you go, oof. I don't know, that's very unsettling. But I think when you, first note, when you consider the quantity of the text, what it means is that you've got these translations coming from different areas in the world that, that can be traced back to different points in time. It's as if all of these translations have different family trees, and you can trace them back. And what you realize is that in one family tree, there is a copying error in a text that slowly gets copied over and over and over in all of these texts. But when you come to these two family trees or these three family trees, you get back and you go, oh, the older manuscripts don't have that note. So very clearly what we know is that over here in this family tree that was going on in this part of the world, this is where that variant emerged. When there are 6,000 ancient texts, you can begin to triangulate with great clarity about where the confusion emerged in any particular text. The quantity of the texts are incredibly helpful. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons there's so many variants is because there's so many texts. When you think about ancient Roman history and the fact that we know some ancient Roman history, you can look at men like Livy or Tacitus who wrote Roman history, Greek historians. And if you looked at the, the, all of the manuscripts, these are some of the most well-attested ancient historians. And if you stacked up all of the ancient manuscripts that we have of them, it would be about, about four feet high. If you stacked all the New Testament ancient manuscripts, it would be about one mile high. There is nothing in comparison to the quantity of text, nothing even close in ancient manuscripts to what we have in the scriptures. But it's not just the quantity, it's the quality. And this is really critical. Because if you've ever heard this idea that we've played this game of telephone, there's 400,000 variants, we can't trust what's in front of us. Let me just tell you about the variants very briefly. 70% of them are spelling errors. Namely because the way that the spelling uh, shifted over time. For instance, John's name, was it spelled with one N or two Ns in the original Greek? That variant gets replayed many, many times, so that adds up. It's not just one, it's many, and every one of those, that's 70% of the 400,000 are, is it two Ns or one? That sort of thing. Another 29% untranslatable alterations because the word order or some structure has been shifted, but the word order in Greek doesn't affect the meaning. The meaning in a Greek sentence is totally bound up in the endings on the words. That's how you know if it's a, an object or a subject, not where it falls in the sentence. So I could have a very accurate translation where the words are inverted, and it means the exact same thing. That's 29% of the variance is alterations in the translation that actually can't be translated because it doesn't make any discernible difference in the meaning itself. So for my mathematicians in the room, that's... 70 plus 29, that's 99% of the variants are spelling and, and, tr and translation errors that can't even be translated. The last 1% are what scholars would call meaningful differences. One of these examples would be something like 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul says, we made ourselves gentle among you. Another ancient manuscript with equal weight to it says, we made ourselves like little children before you. And quite frankly, no scholar can ultimately put it to rest, which it is. That's a meaningful difference. But listen, 
of all the meaningful variants, the meaningful variants that exist in your New Testament. Let, let me ask this question to you. How many of them touch a core theological conviction or doctrine that upholds the life of the church? Not one. Not one. There's not some ancient manuscript that says, oh, by the way, Jesus was not divine, or he wasn't bodily resurrected, or born of a virgin. Or... That variant doesn't exist. So what we have is 6,000 ancient manuscripts stacked a mile high that are proclaiming with great clarity, 99.97% accuracy, that we have what came off of the pens of these eyewitnesses who died proclaiming what I said is true. Let me share this quote with you. Anne Rice, um, author of... uh, Oh man, what'd she write? Oh yeah, Interview with the Vampire. <laughs> Not my, I haven't read a whole lot of erotic horror lately, so for, forgive me. Um, but she wrote Interview with a Vampire, academic, worldwide known author who came back to her Christian faith late in life after abandoning it when she went to college. And the reason was the work she did around this very discussion. She became interested in this idea that was floating around in academic circles of like the historic Jesus versus the biblical Jesus. As if to say that what we have in the scriptures is not corroborated with historical evidence. And she went back to do the work around the texts and this is what she wrote as she came back to her commitment to Jesus. She said, some books that I encountered were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions that were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow ended up crucified, that the whole picture which had been floated around in these progressive circles, I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered that in this field, some of the worst and the most biased scholarship that I had ever read. Uh, I think it was helpful to see that Anne lived firmly in that community for 30 years, and when she finally stopped and did the work herself, what she said is it doesn't hold up. That what we have to, with intellectual honesty, admit is that as far as an ancient text goes, the scriptures are more reliable than anything else we have. And in their reliability, they're proclaiming to be eyewitnesses corroborated by history that died proclaiming what they said was true. One final note before we move on about how these texts are handed down, is that in the first half of the 20th century, there was a growing level of opposition as text criticism was building, especially around some of the Old Testament texts like Isaiah. Because the the oldest manuscripts that we had of the book of Isaiah was about 1000 AD. But it was written presumably about 700 BC. So that's 1700 years removed Critical scholars and skeptics were saying to people that were trusting their Old Testament, reading a book like Isaiah, going, how can you possibly believe that what you're reading is what was written? It's been 1,700 years. How do you know that, uh, that it hasn't been tampered with? All of these prophecies that you proclaim to be true about Jesus that were written in Isaiah, but all you have is it 1,000 years after Jesus came? And then the greatest archaeological discovery of Maybe history, certainly recent history, happened in 1947. The caves of Qumran, a few, sh- a few shepherd boys were throwing rocks into a cave. And they started hitting clay pots that were fracturing. And they went in and they found 600 ancient texts that been, had been hidden away. And in it they found a complete scroll of Isaiah that dated to 100 BC. So it just went back 
almost 1,100 years. Unchanged. Unchanged. That it, it stood the test of time in such a pure way that scholars all of a sudden were stunned saying, okay, the way that these texts have been handled and, and have been copied from generation to generation is outrageously reliable, even over a thousand years. So what we have is a source written by eyewitnesses over the centuries, maintained far beyond any other ancient document ever written. That's what we have in the scriptures. And based on that, Peter makes a command. He calls us to something. And I would just say, if, if you are a skeptic in the room that goes, that's interesting, I'm still not sure if I'm there. What I would say to you, as well as to my Christian brothers and sisters, is that I think this, this command of Peter... It would be fruitful for all of us to consider. What he says is this in verse 19. So he says, We have this prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's going, At least pay attention. At least pay attention to it. Is there anything else like this? that has stood the test of time in these ways, that has been read devotionally and academically for century after century in a way that has produced life change and community after community and culture after culture. He's going, at least just pay attention. Take it up and, and read. And, he, and, and then he, he actually tells us how to pay attention to it. And I think this is incredibly instructive. What he says is pay attention to it like a lamp in a dark room. Now follow me. How do you pay attention to a lamp in a dark room? Do you just like sit and stare at it? I've got a lamp. It's dark in here, but at least I got a lamp. It's not an end in itself. Right? That a lamp in a dark room exists to illumine everything else. And so he's saying, pay attention to it like that. How do you pay attention to a lamp in a dark room? Well, you make sure that you've got your oil ready in this time. You would trim the wick and you'd make sure that it's going to keep burning, that when it gets dark, there will be light to light the house. So paying attention means daily tending to it, making sure that the light is burning and that it's, it's illumining your home. He's saying, tend to it, pay attention to it, but for an end, that you would see everything else. Because in this dark world, listen, we are navigating dark territory. And the question is, how are you going to make the decisions about your life? About what you value? About work? About love and romance? And about identity and marriage? And about your long-term goals and purposes? If all we have to navigate the toughest decisions in life is the gray matter between our ears, and we're doing it awash in a cultural moment that is very particular and very different than lots of others, the question is, is there anything outside of this system that can ground us and give us clarity to keep walking with confidence in the midst of the darkness? And to this end, what Peter is saying is, yes, we have something more sure than the glory cloud itself. We have the text pay attention. It will begin to illumine your path and the means to an end. What he says is, let it illumine for you. Pay attention to it until, did you hear it? Did you hear it? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus in the book of Revelation calls himself the morning star. The text, the reason we engage and love the word is because it gets us to the word. 
Jesus was the word in flesh. And what we realize is that as we, as we engage with this text that has stood the test of time, it reveals to us the hero of history and our hope in life and death. That as we read the Bible from beginning to end, we're introduced to this reality that one is coming right there from Genesis 3. One is coming who will crush the head of the snake. And then by the time God is setting his people free from Egypt by the strong power of Moses' hand raised up, all of a sudden what we hear is there's a greater prophet than Moses who's coming. Just wait. And David takes the throne as the great king. And what we hear is there is one who will be the, the root of David, the stump of David, the, the, the son of David is coming, an even greater king, greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than Elijah is one who is coming. And he came. And when he came, he fulfilled prophecy after prophecy that had been written and maintained over hundreds of years. As he walked through the world, loving and tending to others, Jesus of Nazareth was walking and fulfilling scriptures that had been written from different parts of the world over time that were finding their fullness in him. All of the, all of the promises of God were finding their yes and their amen in Jesus. That when he was bleeding and dying, not one of his bones was broken in conjunction with the scriptures. He was thirsty in conjunction with the scriptures. He died among the poor in conjunction with the scriptures. He was buried with the rich in conjunction with the scriptures. Three days later, he conquered death, coming back alive in conjunction with the scriptures. He then displayed himself to communities as large as groups of 500 at a time, saying, touch me, feel me. All of a sudden, the world had eyewitness accounts of his resurrection walking all around while these claims were being made. It wasn't happening in some corner, as it says in the book of Acts, but he's saying, ask anybody. They saw him. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father after four days where he is seated with authority and power, and one day he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. You see, we cherish the word like a lamp in a dark place because it illumines for us. There is one who has come that has made a way home for us. He's come to rescue his own. And so we pay attention to the word until the morning star rises in our hearts. Friend, if you came in as a skeptic, I'm so glad you're here. My invitation to you is, would you take up and read? Like at minimum, I hope that what has happened is that you're at least doubting your doubts. That you have to go, well, maybe there's something to it. All of those manuscripts, all of that energy, all of that effort, all of that bloodshed by people that wrote it and said, this is worth my life. Like, at minimum, take up and read. And in the reading, see if the, <laughs> see if the morning star doesn't dawn on your heart that you finally see where you fit in the grand story and who the hero of history truly is. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ who've been born again by the grace of God, Pay attention. Don't leave it unread. Like what tragedy that we would affirm all of this and then not be a people of the word. Not as an end to itself that we could be right and have all the answers and tell people, don't you know this is what the Bible says. It's not, it's a means to an end that we would see and savor Jesus and become people that get made into his likeness progressively from day to day. Love the text because it will take you there. It will transform you and expand your heart and make you into the man or the woman that God created you to be. Please, brothers and sisters, take up and read. We have something more sure, more certain than the glory cloud itself. We would be wise to pay attention.
Let me pray for us. So God, I'm so, I'm so thankful that you're a speaking God and that you've spoken in ways that go beyond what human beings could have managed or manipulated so that our faith would grow, so that we could see your revelation unfolding throughout history in brilliant and profound ways. Thank you for the brilliant shaft of light that the scriptures are in a dark place. Open our eyes open our minds, open our hearts that we would affirm what you have said, that we would be men and women of the word that tend to it, that pay attention to it, that keep our our lamp prepared so that we can navigate the shadows and the darkness of the world in which we find ourselves. We love you. We thank you for these scriptures. We pray that they would continue to lead us to the glory and the beauty of Jesus himself. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.